the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. This will be a political philosophy hour, having uh, started the show a few hours back, uh, quoting you from uh, some Plato. It is now time to move to political philosophy via the lens of the Claremont Institute and its president, Ryan Williams. They were the subject of a a big, uh, big story in the New York Times out today, how the Claremont Institute became a nerve center of the American right. Well, the center of the Claremont Institute is its presidency, Ryan Williams, a dear and old friend. Ryan, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks, Seth. It's always a pleasure. You betcha. Always a little nervous making when uh, an outlet like the New York Times tries to take a look into uh, into a conservative institute. Uh, first of all, New York Times get things mostly right, mostly wrong. How, how, how do you judge uh, this big essay? Yeah, it was um, mostly right. Uh, the reporter, Elizabeth Zorowski, tweeted about it, um, and she basically said, she wanted to understand us as we understood ourselves, and I think she was mostly successful in that. We had looked at her work ahead of time and decided that um, we would give her some access because she was, a, uh, you know, certainly center left, but an honest reporter. So, uh, fairly pleased with the result, actually. One of the I things, the, yeah, go ahead, go wrong, ahead. But, yeah, uh, well, a few things yeah. here and there. But one of the things I found interesting was. Uh, it seems like she really did some good homework. Uh, it appears like she actually read some of the tomes that Claremont Institute is either responsible for or relies upon themselves. This was not just a story based on interviews. It looks like she did some some good homework, actually. Yeah, we uh, uh, for Elizabeth. I think between me and Charles and uh, our communications director David Barr, we kind of gave her twelve books or so to check out. But no, she actually made I think a pretty good effort within the constraints of time yeah. uh, to try to you know try to understand what we're about and some of the scholarship. And so I was uh, no, I thought it was a good job. Uh, uh, you right. know, we're so jaded and cynical about the modern <laughs> right. the establishment media right. when, when we. When we get a, a decent, honest piece, everyone's kind of surprised. Yeah, as long as you're not being called a fascist, we'll call it fair, huh? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. By the way, you mentioned 12 books you and um, and Charles and uh, and uh, some others put together for. My audience would love that. Maybe after the interview, if you can think of what those 12 books might have been, I'd love to commend them to the audience and and probably myself. I doubt I'd, I've read them all, too. Think about that. That could be fun. It'd be fun yeah, to review course. those with you over the course of the year, too. Um, tell the audience... Uh, for those that don't subscribe to the New York Times or haven't seen the article um, on the Claremont Institute, uh, how, how would you describe the Claremont Institute? Why did we come into existence? Why do we exist? Um, we're uh, well. I, I like to tell our our fellows every summer. You know, we've always had uh, one foot in the scholarship sort of academic world and one foot in the political world, mm-hmm. and uh, that really it reflects our roots. You know, we were founded by some grad students in the last year of the Carter administration who were. They didn't want to just go disappear into academia, and those included uh, Larry Arn, among others, who now runs Salesdale College. Right. They decided they wanted to uh, to shape elite opinion, elite in the best sense, um, through journalism, through 
basically giving young folks uh, the civics education that they never got in college but should have gotten and used to get uh, in college or high school, how to think about America, how to think about American principles, uh, and how to interpret our current crisis, which they saw as a crisis even back in, in 79, uh, the solution of which is sort of cultivating and reapplying the principles of the founding to our, our current political controversies. So that's what we've been doing for, you know, low these 42 years now through the Claremont Review books, uh, which is, uh, you know, well, your, your listeners know it, uh, a book, uh, book review, but more than that on, on everything from culture and history to our current political fights and their deep philosophical roots, uh, our online publication, The American Mind, our many fellowship programs we hold in the summer now, including our, our newest one for sheriffs, uh, and then our Washington, D.C. Center, the Center for the American Way of Life, which has been up and running for a little over a year and is doing a little more applied work, uh, especially on the, the most important topics these days, we think, which are identity politics, uh, the problem of China, the problem of big tech, uh, and what to do about all that. I want to talk Each about, one. yeah, I want to talk about some of that in a few moments. One of the interesting things, uh, Ryan, that I guess I'd never put together, I should have, I guess we all kind of knew it. Uh, was in the article that the 1970s, the Claremont Institute being founded at the end of that decade in 79, 1970s really was the growth, the growth spurt and the growth of think tanks generally, particularly in the conservative world. I don't think there were really any in existence in the 60s or before that, except perhaps maybe AEI and I don't know what we call RAND. But by and large, most of the think tanks we know of today did come up in the 70s, most of them in Washington, D.C., some in New York. And it is interesting that the Claremont Institute was founded. It was founded with a different orientation than all the other think tanks. They really did talk a lot about specifics and legislation. Claremont saw a bigger role to play for a think tank in the conservative world, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Heritage... uh was founded a little before Claremont, but it, yeah, it wasn't until the 70s. Um, we were, uh, and uh, you're right, AI, AI has been around since the 40s, I think, yeah. and, but it's it's by itself in that category. Yeah, um, yeah, we were, uh, we were always sort of outside the beltway, but keenly interested in it, um, and we, we wanted to focus on, we were, I mean, everyone does fellowship programs now for young people, but we were really the first. Um, including some early joint ventures, uh, at least in the 80s and maybe early 90s with Heritage. So that the whole project of teaching young people, um, either just out of college or barely in college or in grad school or on their way to careers, was was always a core of what we did, but we were really pioneers in, in that respect. And it reflected our academic roots and um, and sort of camaraderie. The roster of people who have run through the fellowships is a pretty darn impressive constellation of conservative thought, isn't it? It is, yeah. Every, everyone from media, you know, uh, more older hands in media, uh, Mark Levin, Laura Ingram, to uh, newer folks like Molly Hemingway. Um, actually, Molly and her husband, Mark, did the fellowship together. Um, Mark writes a lot, does a lot of great investigative journalism for our friends over at the, the Real Clear Politics Universe and real clear investigations to politicians like Tom Cotton, to uh, grassroots you know, leaders and, and institution builders like Charlie Kirk, who was a Lincoln Fellow last summer. Um, so media, think tank world, the policy world, uh, and even, even some politicians. And we now have uh, two um, federal circuit court judges who are alums of the programs, uh, Steve Menasche in the Second Circuit and 
and our friend Lawrence Van Dyke is uh, holding down sanity here, uh, uh, not all by his, his lonesome, but somewhat lonely uh, in the Ninth Circuit. <laughs> and and we also helped end the mask mandate on travel through one of our fellowships. That's, that's right, yeah. Our uh, uh, Judge Catherine Mazel was a John Marshall Fellow, uh, which is our fellowship for, for young lawyers. She's, uh, I think, the youngest district court judge in the country um, down in uh, in the, the Tampa Bay area, and she she is the one who vacated the mask mandate, saying it was uh, uh, sort of arbitrary and capricious use of regulatory power. So we all have uh, Judge Mazel to thank for that, and God bless her. Well, we have you to thank for it as well, and Tom <laughs> Klingenstein. You and I, you and I, really got our hands dirty building that fellowship, and uh, it's one of the things I'm most proud of uh, in my work with Claremont because I think yeah, that. I John, will, yeah. yeah, I'll yeah. brag for you, Seth. Yeah, Seth, <laughs> uh, your, your <laughs> listeners, your gracious host, Seth Leapson, helped us build the John Marshall program back. Uh, first one was in. 2012. No, I thought it was it was wonderful work. No, nothing We're could be more important. Stuff. You know, I saw Charles Kessler once say the worst place to understand and learn about the Constitution is law schools, and that hence is why we needed to create the John Marshall Fellowship, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. No. It's uh, you can you can uh, go through law school these days, and this is this is literally true, uh, listeners. You can go through law school these days having never taken a course. Uh, in which you read the Federalist Papers, and that includes constitutional law courses, which is kind of a travesty. I mean, constitutional law these days is taught as, you know, the latest precedents from the last century and a half, or if you're lucky. lucky. It's a case method (laughs) study is what they've done to it, and they never actually get to the Constitution. Ryan Williams is our guest. He's the president of the Claremont Institute. We have to take a quick commercial break. We'll come right back, and I want to get into it with him a little bit about some of the specific things that the Claremont Institute is now taking on when it comes to the public policy we all face, whether it's identity issues, whether it's the threat of China. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Ryan Williams, the president of the Claremont Institute, is our guest. The Claremont Institute is the subject of a big piece in the New York Times just out today. Ryan, one of the things that distinguishes Claremont from other think tanks and really even within the world of what's known as Straussianism is its ability and interest in applying uh, philosophical wisdom to practical problems. Do you want to say a word about Straussianism and then a word about Claremont's view of Leo Strauss's scholarship and what we're supposed to do with it? Yeah, no, it's, uh, we get it in some ways from our uh, intellectual mentor, Harry Jaffa, who, you know, was an English major at Yale. And uh, as he put it memorably, he was taught the history of politics or political philosophy as if he was touring through a wax museum. Mm-hmm. You know, these were all interesting exhibits, but really had no relevance. And then he met Leo Strauss, who taught political philosophy as if it might have things to teach us, as if Aristotle may actually have been right, <laughs> uh, and had some wisdom to uh, dispense to us that might be applicable today or really is applicable at all times and places. And uh, human nature being relatively... Uh, unchanged over the last few millennia, uh, if not much, much longer. The the problems of politics and the problems, the difficulty of doing justice in a political community, these are eternal questions. And so natural justice or justice by nature or natural right was a, a question that really political philosophy had always grappled with. And so uh, treating old, the greatest authors of, of 
you know, the history of the written word uh, or the history of uh, men grappling with these questions, men and women grappling with these questions, was not a dead thing or a historical artifact. It was a live question um, that could be applied today. So Strauss really revived the serious study of old books as if they might have something still to teach to us and uh, in a way founded his own part of the study of political philosophy that took that as its touch point. And he, he had, of course, many generations of students, and they now have two, three generations of students themselves. And so that's what Straussianism is. There are disagreements within it, but it, broadly speaking, uh, it's the, um, the serious study of old books and the, the interrogation of the, of the possibility that uh, there are some eternal truths about human nature, about justice, about politics that we need to learn, that are hard to learn, but are accessible. And really, it's the most important thing one can do to be a responsible and civically-minded citizen, teacher, or statesman. I want to come back to that point of human nature in a second. But first, would you dispense with something we read a lot about from people who don't know what they're talking about, that Leo Strauss was the genitor of the neoconservative movement? Would you like to address that real quick? Yeah, it was a slander propagated by Shadia Drury, a third-rate thinker, uh, among others. You know, because because Paul Wolfowitz uh, was at Chicago when Strauss was there and maybe took a class or two with him, uh, and because Strauss, in they pulled completely out of context Strauss's discussion of this concept of a noble lie, which appears in Plato, uh, meaning the noble lie being, you know, sometimes uh, forward-thinking statesmen or founders maybe need to invent salutary truths uh, to dispense to the populace to to get them to uh, uh, sort of well their truth their uh, their noble lies they're noble because they're uh, they they have at their root some truth about human nature or governance uh, but they have to be a lie because not everyone can understand and follow things rationally so they have to follow things through superstition or custom or whatever anyway long winded way of saying they 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 married Wolfowitz's study with Strauss his involvement in the Iraq War. Uh, and Strauss's very scholarly presentation of what Plato meant by noble lie mashed it all together, and somehow uh, the Bush administration, guided by Wolfowitz and others, were telling the noble lie about weapons of mass destruction so that they could get a war that would lift the populace up and, and you know encourage a sense of American greatness. The whole thing's pretty fancy, but it was preposterous. <laughs> and, and there it is, and that's how it yeah. works. That's how you get the lie. Yeah. That's how you get the lie about Strauss and neoconservatism as well. Let's go back to that pregnant phrase. Human nature is unchanged. Isn't that kind of the war we're fighting right now against the left? They think it can change, don't they? They do. Um, and it's um, it's a hard thing to describe to for normal people when they look at the leading edge of leftism, how it, anyone could be this kind of crazy, you know, when you say that, that – uh, uh, you're assigned the gender at birth, and really uh, you can choose to be a man or a woman or some hybrid between the two. Uh, that sort of thing strikes normal people as kooky. But really the the basis for that is goes back at least 100 years, which is the notion that human nature uh, is malleable and perfectible and that the source of all morality is really not timeless truths or reason or or even reason and or revelation, but really the human will and how it moves across time. So uh, they also, uh, one distinguishing factor of the modern left, and it leads, it leads them to be kind of naive or to 
hurdle forward relentlessly is they really do think that the well, setting aside Trump, we can get to that. They think the problem of tyranny is not really a problem anymore, the problem of political tyranny, at least in the progressive West as they see it. So the sort of endless um, uh, experimentation with uh, an ever-increasingly large federal government and reaching into more and more parts of our lives, that can never really be tyrannical in their eyes because uh, history is progressive we've gotten to a point where we don't have to worry about the threat of governmental power. If we just gave the experts uh, enough power, they could usher in, you know, paradise on earth, frankly. Whereas the founders, uh, Straussians of good standing, uh, to bring up that term from our, our previous discussion, uh, all, all think that uh, the problem of tyranny is ever-present because human nature uh, really doesn't change all that much. You know, the, the passions that distorted uh, small d democratic majorities and led them to abuse the rights and and pervert justice uh, were the same really the passions were the same in ancient Athens as they are in modern America. The solutions are different, and our world is much different uh, through technology and science and all the rest. but the fundamental drivers of human folly and ignorance and unwise things uh, those don't change and so the problem of governmental authority. Uh, being unwise and, and uh, marshalling those passions to evil ends is a problem that's always with us. Yeah, and as Whitaker Chambers said, it's nothing new. It's the second oldest faith that we can be as gods, which is why we see the nexus between the progressive efforts and Marxism or the neo-Marxist movement that is now among us. Let me take another quick commercial break, and let's come back on that word you uttered, Trump. Trump and the Claremont Institute. Let's talk about all the attention that's been showered on you from that. Ryan Williams is our guest. He is the president of the Claremont Institute. As I go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsor, Y Refi. If you are looking for a unique investment opportunity, check out my friends at Y Refi. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm of investors who do really well by doing really good for others, and you can as well. They're offering a fixed no-load interest rate, up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. You can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, refi.com. I'm Seth, he's Ryan. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Ryan P. Williams is our guest. He's the president at the Claremont Institute, thus also the publisher of the Claremont Review of Books and other great publications. The Claremont Institute operating philosophically and theoretically for many years, and then the advent and presence of Donald Trump comes on the scene, Ryan, and the Institute got a lot more attention. What is the Trump-Claremont Institute nexus connection and 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 furor about about <laughs> yeah in a way it was launched by a couple of essays um back in the, the spring of 2016 my colleague bill vogley wrote in the clever review books a piece about uh i think it was titled why i'm anti anti-trump uh-huh. um and uh and basically making the case for uh people on the never trump right to uh to sort of stop freaking out so much and to consider uh, Trump in the context of his sort of a public appeal and uh, the problem of uh, binary choice in any election. Uh, at that point, of course, it wasn't uh, fated that Trump would be the nominee, but close. Uh, and then uh, the Flight 93 election, which our friend Mike Anton, who at the time was in corporate America and, and published under a pseudonym, uh, Publius Decius Moose, or just Decius, 
uh, a throwback to a Roman uh, Roman figure from ancient times. Uh, and he made the argument that, like, you know, we should take a chance on Trump. Uh, the Republicans have kind of been interchangeable and feckless in recent decades. Um, Trump is sounding the right notes, overdue notes on the central issues that have been neglected, that the Republican base has been clamoring for us to do something about for years, which is a more modest foreign policy, uh, immigration that takes borders seriously, and uh, trade that doesn't hollow out the middle class. And, uh, you know, he tried to make the case for for supporting Trump. And some of us, uh, like our friend John Marini, was sort of quietly writing long emails behind the scenes, laying out the case for why this was the first real political movement and political election probably since uh, Ronald Reagan, in the sense that Trump was putting together a political coalition uh, on, under around a set of issues that that political coalition cared about and seemed to be, from our assessment, uh, keen on implementing that policy basket after he'd put that constitutional uh, coalition together, rather than the kind of anti-politics, antiseptic way in which Washington had been run, even from the Republican presidents, which was too much deference to the bureaucrats in the administrative state, uh, no real creative thinking about the issues that actually concern voters, and just uh, a kind of uh, progressivism going the speed limit, as uh, a, an author, Michael Malice, has put it. So Trump looked like a real disruption of all of that and uh, was making a lot of the right arguments and and uh, had some good people around him. So that, that, was, uh, that was the case. One of our complaints, yours and mine, I think, I don't mean to speak for you, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of that never-Trump or anti-Trump movement within conservative circles didn't quite understand the stakes of what you like to call a regime-level threat to our existence, yeah? Yes. Yeah, I think that's the main dividing line, I would say, on the right these days about. And it, not, it doesn't track completely with, with one's opinion of Trump, but it's close. I think the folks who uh, recognize that we're in a real crisis and have been for quite some time, that it seems to be getting more acute and that some of the left's moves these days really could usher in a decades or generation of pretty bad and tyrannical or increasingly tyrannical policies and way of doing politics and the abuse of rights of certain portions of the population who are disfavored. That all, to us, seems like something completely antithetical to uh, American justice as it was understood and promulgated for the first 150 years of the Republic. Um, uh, and as we do always on this stuff, we, we, a big asterisk being, of course, we know the problem of slavery. Our, our, our position on this has always been that uh, the founders knew that slavery was unjust. It's right there in the Declaration of Independence, uh, but they unfortunately thought they couldn't do anything about it at the time, so they delayed that to a later date. Um, but uh, anyway, I, I, I always put that in there because I hate being taken out of context. But well, I'll, I'll put something in the there golden, on that. The golden days are, uh, you know, half of, half of the golden days as we see them were, were when we had slavery. But. I'll, I'll put something in there as we had to break yeah. in, and we'll do one last segment uh, on this, uh, Ryan, uh, when we come back from the break, which is the Claremont Institute has uh, no one to apologize to when it comes to discussing slavery in the United States or slavery in our history. Uh, there's no scholar greater um, than our own Harry Jaffa, who provided the arguments uh, for the modern age, the philosophical underpinnings as to why slavery was such a great evil and such a great wrong. Anyone who wants to think that we're bearing slavery simply doesn't know our work, our heritage, our founder, or 
our founding. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Ryan Williams. We'll come right back talking about some of these regime-level threats we face, from identity politics to China. Don't go away. Concluding our uh, discussion with Ryan Williams at the Claremont Institute, especially with regard to the New York Times um, essay about it. Ryan, regime-level threats that the Claremont Institute is involved in, identity politics, China. Discuss a few of these things. We've rolled up our sleeves in a new way to confront them. Uh, I guess because uh, the challenges are new, our arguments, or at least our efforts, must be new, right? Yeah, so it's, it's yeah the work of our our friend and colleague Arthur Millick, the executive director of our Center for the American Way of Life, and we're we're doing the things we've always done, which is laying out the battle of ideas that we see in these issues, identity politics, um, while, while also uh, focusing a bit on the policy solutions, whether they be at the state level uh, or at the federal level. And yeah, we see them as identity politics, namely the notion that. Um, uh, the only way to get justice in America is through equity, which means uh, really you need equality of results uh, across all racial groups. You have to count people by race, by gender, et cetera, rather than the older notion that you uh, count citizens individually and, and as God-bearing uh, uh, people with equal natural rights uh, they, that we can know both through, through reasoning about nature and then also uh, through uh, being created in the image of God. And we see that's a, that's a threat to civic to civic harmony. Uh, you can't run a multiracial uh, large republic if you're going to divide people, uh, divide and conquer people, really, in a way, uh, based on demographic, based on the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or all the rest. And then China, that's obvious. Uh, we're, uh, it's closely linked to what to do about uh, trade and how to reshore some manufacturing and more manuf- domestic manufacturing capability, especially in the sense of uh, building and, and securing and supporting a, uh, a middle class and a lower middle class, the, the bedrock of any stable, small-R republic. Uh, and then this, this notion, the rising notion that um, r- really we're all global citizens, borders are anachronistic, uh, and uh, it's racist to do anything but have completely open borders. This is a notion that's antithetical to the American founders, how they thought about uh, government by consent, about social compact, about our political community. Uh, in a way, every political community is like a private club. It, it gets to decide amongst itself uh, who it will let in as new members, and there's nothing illegitimate about that. Those are sort of our big uh, topics that we're, we're challenging or uh, tackling. And I should say also big tech, uh, especially in the sense in which uh, our large monopolistic or oligopolistic Social media and um, uh, search, and you know, Google, Facebook, uh, Apple, uh, name, name, take your pick. Uh, to the extent that they choose to place their thumb on the scale of public deliberation and to influence the outcome of elections and uh, throttle how we talk to each other about important issues. To the, to the extent that they're getting in the way of that, they, they seem to us to be a, a real threat to the lifeblood of any democracy, which is public deliberation about important things. And the threat becomes harder and harder to fight because in our last few minutes here, Ryan, if you might say something, which is about kind of a book concept you and I keep threatening to deal with at some point, which is the regime hierarchy that we live in, right? It becomes harder and harder to fight when we are, um, what shall we say, cabin and cabin further into the categories of the untermenschen, yeah? 
Yeah, that's right. Um, the uh, we, We've made a lot of this phrase that the left likes to throw around, or even the center left, or even the center these days. Our ruling class likes to talk about our democracy. Mm-hmm. And what they really mean by that is the set of things that are currently considered to be just, right, and good, uh, by set by the expert class in the academy, and really sort of you know, the modern left. So uh, to the extent that the leftism in this bigger philosophical sense, has colonized or taken over almost every major institution in the country, whether it's the Protestant churches, um, you know, or just the church more generally, uh, the HR departments at all our Fortune 100 and 500 companies, higher education, uh, certainly everything coming out of Hollywood or most everything, uh, and, and certainly the governing class and the giant bureaucracy that sets more and more rules for our life rather than Congress doing that the older way, uh, with no accountability, we, you know, this is, uh, this has, this, this, uh, this, uh, aggression cannot stand. Uh, this cannot continue. Uh, it's a big Lebowski reference for, for Seth and his, and his longtime fans. Uh, the, uh, you know, we, we have to, this whole constellation of forces and the ideology behind them, uh, will snuff out self-government, uh, perhaps for a very long time if we don't fight it vigorously. And it means taking on the separate institutions in various different ways strategically, and it also means teaching and writing and trying to wake fellow citizens up about these problems, and then also, uh, you know, running on and enacting a certain set of policies that might try to uh, turn back the tide. Ryan Williams, you have been generous with your time as you have been with your scholarship. Uh, last concluding thought, can we win this thing? Can we save the West? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, we're, uh, I, I, I didn't mention the word, but we're, uh, I've said it on here before. We're not historicists. We don't think anything's inevitable. We don't think history is heading in any particular direction. Nothing is fated. Uh, you know, it's ultimately our fate is in our hands. Now the challenges may be greater after, uh, a few generations of institutional rot and capture by, by nefarious forces, but, uh, the best we can do is, continue to place our faith in a sensible American electorate, which I still think is less ideolo- much less ideological and more sensible than people sometimes uh, realize uh, following the news day to day. And, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing we shouldn't, there's no better work we should be doing than continuing this fight because uh, uh, politics is never inevitable. Justice is hard to achieve, but, um, but nothing lasts forever. So we'll continue to make public arguments, continue to try to convince our fellow citizens and, continue try to try to um, uh, preserve and recover the American way of life. Well done, Ryan Williams. And let the record reflect, there were two references to The Big Lebowski on this show, both of them yours, not mine. Uh, but Godspeed to you, Ryan. What was the first one? <laughs> well, the, well, you just said the fate, her, our fate is in her hands. Your fate is in her oh, hands, yeah. dude. <laughs> yes, in the parlance of our times, that is a reference to The Big Lebowski. Now we have three. Bless you, Ryan Williams. Godspeed. Thank you for everything you do and are, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks, <laughs> You bet. We'll talk soon. Claremont.org is their website, C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T.org. And from there, you can get to all the other programs that they run. And, of course, the Claremont Review of Books, The American Mind, really crucial reading at this time and stage in all of our lives. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. 
portions of this show brought to you by the good people of Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. I take it every single day for immunity, for health, for energy, pure potent plant power, 100% natural, best product I've ever taken. You can too. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. After talking with Ryan, uh, it dawns on me that given the nature of this audience, the literature, the literate nature of this audience, many of you will uh, want to know where to start if you want to begin to understand or learn the works of Harry Jaffa, who I quote quite often, the intellectual founder of the Claremont Institute, my teacher. And there's a few things you can do. You can go online and pick up any number of his essays. Uh, the American Regime is the Best Regime Would Be One. His books are incredible. His first big book was Crisis of the House Divided. It's an elegant book about America, American history, and the debates between uh, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, which is the same debate we were talking about in the first hour that Plato puts forward in the Republic between Thrasymachus and Socrates. It's not like that debate. It is the debate. What is justice? And uh, Harry Jaffa puts it into the American political regime in that book. Uh, or his final book, or at least uh, must have been um, his biggest final book, which was A New Birth of Freedom, which is a follow-up to The Crisis of the House Divided, A New Birth of Freedom, also elegant, tremendous amount of learning. Each book could constitute an entire course in political science and political philosophy, and it's easy to read, too. That's how you know you're in the midst of a really good teacher. The thinking, the writing, the teaching, it's clear. It's clear. It's not abstruse. It's not obscure. It's clear. You know you're in the mode of junk thought when things have to be made abstruse by the intellectuals. Smart doesn't have to be complicated. I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, thanks again for spending some time with us. And this class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.